Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce this talk because it's uh, marking the launch of Invisible Landscapes, a project that we've been working on for the last year. And it's also the first project uh, in, the, in the new architecture studio, which will be exploring architecture and its connection with the wider visual arts over the next uh, year. Through three interconnected installations, Invisible Landscapes <clears throat> aims to make visible the often invisible presence of digital technologies in our everyday lives and surrounding environments. These technologies offer uh, innovative solutions for living and cooperating in a globalized world, connecting people and places and making our environments and action more efficient. However, their use also raises issues around privacy, security, sustainability, health and dependency. Invisible landscapes will look at different contexts from the home to the city to reflect on how architecture can respond to emerging issues around new technologies and suggest new ways of being, belonging and connecting. For the first act of Invisible Landscape, we have commissioned a Barcelona-based architecture practice Mayo. In their installation that you can visit now in the architecture studio, Mayo explores the impact of, uh, on domestic spaces of a smart technology like Alexa and also serving economy platform like Deliveroo and Airbnb and amongst many others. And also how this may be altering the meaning of home. In the apartment that Mayo have designed, uh, they explore how this digital technology responds to changing economic, economic and social conditions, redefining contemporary domesticity and questioning how architects will operate in this context. They present the home as, a, as not simply an isolated space, but part of a wider system where the boundary between public and private, urban and domestic spheres are blurred. Then the following act of Invisible Landscape will open in October, and for this second act we have commissioned uh, Dark Matter Laboratories and Architecture 00, uh, who will explore the impact of digital technologies on the built environment proposing a, a response to alternative ways of public policy and governance in the city. For the third act, opening in December, uh, we will examine how architects embrace virtual, augmented, and mixed reality in their creative process, and the role architecture might play in an augmented future. Now let me introduce you to, to Mayo, because this is today Anna is representing Mayo, but it's a much wider team. Uh, Mayo was founded in 2012, in Barcelona by Maria Charneco, Alfredo Lerida, Guillermo López, and Ana Pujaner, who is joining us today. The later world recipient of uh, the Harvard University Wilbright Prize in 2016 for her proposal, Kitchenless City. The project studied exemplars of collective housing in Brazil, Sweden, Russia, Korea, and elsewhere, and reflect uh, a variety of approaches to organizing and distributing domestic spaces. Mayo's work examines a special system that allows theoretical and practical positions to converge. The award-winning practice has developed a wide range of projects and scales from furniture or exhibition design to housing blocks and urban planning. Mayo also combines their professional activity with, uh, with the academia research and editorial projects. The, just to explain you a little bit how, uh, what it will be the format of the event today, we will start with a lecture by Anna, uh, we're co-director of Mayo, as I said, presenting the results of the research on London's sharing economy platforms and connected it with Kitchenless City. Her lecture will be followed by a small presentation uh, by Ippolito Pestellini-Laparelli, um, 
co-curator of the 12th edition of Manifesta Biennale, which we are very thankful because he's opening it next year. Um, he's more uh, well-known as architect and partner of OMA AMO. Um, we have invited him uh, also because in 2013, I think it was the, in the Oslo Architecture Channel, he created uh, the disruptive digital sharing platform Panda. So he will be talking about that amongst other ideas. Uh, before handing over to, to Anna, I would like to thank uh, the wider uh, team at Mayo, uh, um, Maria, Alfredo, Guillermo, and Anna for their effort, energy, and enthusiasm over the last month to make this project happen. Uh, because it, has not, it hasn't been like easy at all the, all the moments, uh, especially because we were opening a new building and that makes things a little bit more complicated. Also, I would like to thank uh, the supporters of the architecture program at the RA, the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture, and our lead sponsor this year, Taki Ceramics. And one last acknowledgement to Nowness, our media partner for Invisible Landscapes. And now, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming our speaker tonight, Anna Pujaner. Thank you, Gonzalo, for this nice introduction. I feel like home at this point, and I'm happy to be surrounded with by so many friends. So let me first uh, uh, give my thanks to a lot of people that have uh, worked in this project, basically because today is, I'm going to present uh, the result of a few months of hard work, um, almost a year. So first, thank you for the invitation. I'm really happy that the Royal Academy is opening this space to reflect on contemporary architecture. I think that it's quite, um, quite a big step for the institution and actually quite a good one. And I'm looking forward to see the results in the following years of this movement. So first of all, thank you, Kate Goodwin and Gonzalo Rero, as curators of this um, program, for inviting us, and as well as the whole team, especially to Helen and Harriet for their support during the, all these months. And uh, of course, to my own team, um, Guillermo Lopez, who is joining me here today, Maria Charneco, um, Alfredo Lerida, and especially um, the rest of the team that has also worked in the project, as uh, Nuria Ortigosa and Sayitano Ther, who's also here today, that uh, work on the research. We were commissioned, we were asked to answer to this question, how new technologies affect our homes slash our houses, and uh, to the extent uh, suddenly we started, of course, as an answer, we started to research about those um, architects that had to face the same question or similar questions in, in these last decades. So, of course, I, I'm going to start today quoting um, Peter and Arthur Smithson, who in March 1956 presented to the public their celebrated House of the Future at the Ideal Home Exhibition organized by the Daily Mail. In that proposal, every single detail of the house was designed by the architects, from furniture to the door handles, and even the clothing. Everything was designed as a set of a choreography of integrated architectural elements. Technologies and other devices were embedded into the architecture. Architecture, therefore, being kind of a glove of those technologies. A new form was generated to this, thanks to this new relation so therefore, kind of architecture was answering to technology through form, 
and especially through materiality. At that time, they claimed that the house of the future was going to be made in plastic. In, that in 1956, uh, the Smithson couldn't actually build a house in plastic. It was, you know, wooden built, painted, and faking that was plastic. Um, and going beyond that, what it was interesting is that they claimed that the house was filled with connectivity. So the house was interconnected among the spaces, connected to the wall, and connected to Mars. But beyond this will to, of interconnectivity, the house was presented as an isolated architecture, no context at all, and actually the, the, all the program was displayed around a patio, enclosing, enclosing it into in, to indoors. Visitors were not invited to get in. I think that, that that's quite a relevant issue. But rather, they, wel they were welcomed in, on a platform that was one floor above, so they could see the house from, you know, from another level as a model, as an object. This project preceded the seminal text by Brendan Banham, A Home is Not a House, published in the magazine Art and an America in April 1965, so nine years later. The essay was accompanied by iconic illustrations by Francois D'Alegre, that we all know, of course, in which the house was presented as a set of technologies which ultimately give shape to the domestic space. Banham described the home as a set of technologies that, as he argued, um, would allow our way to the new nomadic life. For me, for us, what was quite important uh, from Banham is that he actually already pointed out the actual nomadists that we are embedded nowadays. But in comparison to the Smithsons, here materiality and form what was a bit different. Materiality was just a thin layer, kind of a thin shelter, and form was almost invisible, almost transparent. But despite that, still the contents was not there. So the house was isolated and from the context. The context was totally denied. And today, despite of the rapid evolution of technology, we can see that the typical house greatly differs from earliest visions. So our house of the future, the house of now, doesn't look like it was supposed to look at all. And even with devices becoming more and more immersed in our central life, in our daily life, their size is also getting smaller and their presence becoming almost invisible. New technologies have modified the way we use architecture faster than architecture itself. Architecture actually hasn't changed that much. We know that the house of the future is going to look like the house of now, where form and materiality is preexistent and related to a context that goes beyond the house itself and deals with the city. I think that that's why the big difference from that time to nowadays. We do accept the context, we do accept the existence, we do accept the ordinary. We know that that's our now and that, that would be our future. And what we know as well is that thanks to these technologies, houses have expanded into the urban sphere, so we cannot deny the urban. And the houses have become much more generic and reprogrammable. If we can, again, recall in certain theories of 19th century, coming back to the modern architects, where through the card the 10 defined in 1933 by Le Corbusier, they envision a division of the city 
by functions, clearly splitting living areas from leisure and production. During the next decades, this idea, we know already that there were a lot of people that claim against them, Jane Jacobs, Ken Remkulhas, among others. And nowadays, that, such, that division cannot be accepted anymore, and issues that those kind of limitations between leisure and labor are, not, are almost impossible, not there. Houses and workplaces become increasingly closer to one another. Labor relations have converged, and houses have become the framework from, for this blurry situation. Current digital sharing economy platforms allow people not only to work from home, but also the mar- to market their houses and domestic services online with ease. Turning the house once more into a space of productive labor that extends beyond housework. Leisure labor have dangerously merged in an, what, um, what it's so called and so uh, talk lately in a non-stop 24-7 basis. Quoting Turner and Crary, for instance. From domestic commercial service to share economy platforms, the ease of access that new, this new technology's reality offers is changing our habits and our homes. Today I'm going to present a set of devices that we all know, and I'm going to raise some questions to try to reflect on how these this new apps and this new digital access is affecting our homes. And these, these new apps answer for, are appearing and are being so successful for many, many reasons. Let me quote some data. We know that in the recent years, family structures have completely changed and their forms have expanded. The increase in, on single occupancy living, lower, lower birth rates, aging society, the lack of jobs stability, and other similar social tendencies have radically changed the idea of family and therefore their ways of inhabiting, inhabiting the home. So it's we could argue, maybe we can discuss further afterwards, that all this success of this digital world is related to the increase of an unstable world. For instance, in London, single occupancy housing. In 2011, 35% of London households were occupied by one person, 35%. One-bedroom housing units is just accounted by 10%. So more, almost the 90% of our stock doesn't answer to that 35% situation. And one of the reasons for this increase in the single person occupancy in Britain is the, of course, growing numbers of aging population. It is estimated that the cur- current ratio of people aged over 65 is 12.4 and will rise to 16 by 2040. And the number will double the age, the age of, that, of that people will double to up to 85 years. So that's quite a lot. And with that, all these living habits have changed, especially the eating and cooking habits. It's not by chance that the Libero, Uber Eats, and Just Eat, these platforms that we use and know pretty well, mean uh, 3.6 billion pounds in our actual industry in Britain, 3.6 billion. And what is curious is that the people between 25 and 35 claim that 50% of, of, of that population claim that they just do takeovers, almost no cook. 
breathe spend the average in our society spend just 5.9 hours a week cooking, which is almost nothing if you divide per seven. But what is quite interesting is how this apps, this the increase of delivery is affecting on how we understand the kitchen. Of course, the kitchen has passed from a daily use room to something that is more abstract and in some cases almost not used at all. But we can also understand it totally on the other side. And this is related to what I was quoting before, the access to this, that these platforms is allowing somehow uh, to this... It's more, much more easy to work from home, and therefore the, ki the kitchen is also used on those terms, and it's turning into a place of domestic productive labor. And then we, ha we could find a lot of uh, apps in relation, in relation to the kitchen that were using the kitchen as a place of in a sec to have a secondary income. For instance, this one extra dish that offers, you know, as the title says, an extra dish on sale through the app. So that means that suddenly once cooked for oneself, cooks a little bit more and can sell that uh, extra dish online having a secondary income. Some of those platforms have totally um, kind of an economical aim, but some of them, as this one, Olio, has another aim that goes beyond the economical and it's related to more ideological slash uh, trying to behave better, so to say. Olio basically is this platform that you can share your leftovers online so people is not only getting a secondary income but also it has this philosophy embedded and you, we will see that there's a lot of apps that play with this double uh, game in, in this coin somehow being an income, but at the same time trying to sell that income, maybe cleaning the image of it, uh, through a certain type of morality. Quite interesting phenomenon in relation to the kitchen, uh, or, or these apps that are related with the kitchen, is all these apps that are allowing these houses to become restaurants once in a while. We have, as this one, Grub Club, or Biz Eat, and as those two, there are many, many others that actually can allow to turn a home into a restaurant. Um, and this phenomenon started in the 90s in Cuba uh, through the so known nowadays paladares. Paladares were initially illegal until early 90s, and they came out as a resistance from these families that were starving, and somehow they found that their houses could be uh, a, a space for production, from economical production. So they started to turn these homes as restaurants, and the government um, legalized them in 1993. So nowadays in Cuba, all these domestic restaurants are legal and part of the offer. And I would say that through the, this last decade have been normalized to the point that they're restaurants, not homes anymore. And it's, but it's curious how this phenomenon that had a large impact in Cuba has beyond go, had gone beyond Cuba, affecting other cities that started to operate in the same way restaurants at homes. 
And just as an, as an anecdote, but it's quite, it's quite um, uh, kind of curious, the name comes from a soap opera. So Paladar is the restaurant of, uh, of the main soap opera that was being uh, shown in Cuba at that time, where one of the characters run a set of uh, restaurants called Paladar. Okay. What is interesting about the, all these phenomena is to understand um, how homes have uh, shifted uh, their status to, towards, a lab, to, towards labor. And uh, at the same time, so as this uh, new uh, in The Guardian, the sharing economy is transforming the freelance landscape. So sharing economy and all these digital platforms somehow are empowering new types of, of labor. And, but at the same time, there's the risk of how this labor can grow. And that's totally related with uh, how, what had happened with Airbnb. And I know that there's people from Airbnb now here in the audience. So it's a good message to them. There's the risk, of course, when uh, this, um, this professionalization grows and turns into something else. So there's, it's, there's a limit in the balance where this common wealth is not there anymore, and the profit of this uh, labor is capitalized by just few people. And therefore, we have a lot of bad consequences in cities and beyond. As you know, the platform Airbnb lists more than four or five million homes in over nine, 191 countries, so it's not few. They're not few. And uh, it's curious because the platform has presented somehow this message that they tangled belong anywhere, which somehow recalls Banham message. So they're talking to this nomadic uh, society that we're, we're becoming. So somehow they're totally following what Banham predicted. And although NBRB highlights issues of trust, community, and sharing, their effort lies in making anywhere home. And what it's curious about the platform is the, their numbers, right? Airbnb is growing fast in London. In 2015, there were just 250,000, 15,000. Last spring, numbers in London rose to 935,000 which is quite a number. This growth is alarming because these properties are removing from the housing supply, and we should be alert of that, putting extra pressure on the already strained residential property market. And actually, this growth of these companies are putting the alert on, on different governments. It's not only Airbnb, but others. What happened when these shared platforms are becoming quite a danger for other parts of the society? And to avoid this economic pressure, in 2015, the UK government introduced a law that limits short-term residential to 99 nights per year, but despite that, the numbers are growing. It's true that we have to be alert of these dangers, that the sharing economy is becoming professionalized, so suddenly it's not anymore a secondary source of income, but suddenly a, a primary source, and how we should deal with that in terms of legality in terms of social security and so. What is also interesting about to look at Airbnb closer 
is that, as you may know, they offer professional photography services for those who lease their homes. And in addition, the photographs are altered to give each room a neutral character so that people can imagine feeling at home in any of them. I, th I think that this shift the idea of belonging from personal taste towards imaginary based on proper aesthetics and Instagram tense. There's a clear shift towards the idea of belonging. And we, we were aware of it based on self-storage tendencies. It's quite curious that UK residents rent four times more self-storage space than France. So four times more is quite a lot, but nine times more than Germany. And in Europe, you're the one, UK. To the point that half of Europe's self-storage units are in Britain, which means 42.2 million square feet. That's a lot. What is curious is that all, most of the users are over 45 years old, which means that below 45, hardly, most of, of that part of the population hardly use this storage. If you think about it, the reason it might be, for sure, not because they have larger apartments, not because already they have storage, it's just because the idea of belonging is shifting from objects to something else. Society beyond 45, they don't trust anymore about having objects, but they get out. So they sell more, they buy more at the same time, and resell through Bebo, Wallapop, and similar apps. The idea that you can have something and sell it and have it again quite easy allows us to imagine a society without objects, and therefore the idea of belonging is shifting from that to something else to something scary that can be a cliche stereotype through Instagram. So domesticity, or the idea of the domestic, is not anymore related to personal objects, but something that is more related to our Instagram tastes. Um, coming back to the, to the idea of uh, the Smithsons, actually at that time, the Smithsons reflected on the percentage of a space in every house devoted to storage. And they specified a specific ratio. It was around 20-something, around 30%. At that time, life was considered as simple as being able to be calculated. So it could be programmed, defined, etc. Nowadays, we know that our family structures are diverse. Our jobs and economics resources change over through the time. So it's more, much more difficult to calculate, or at least our calculations are not that simple to just be summed up in just one number. And one of the consequences, basically, is, as I was mentioning, the, the easy access to these platforms and how these platforms are also shifting the idea, not only in belonging, but also the idea of storage. We, ha we, we found a new tendency that is hope that might, might have an impact here. Uh, as platforms as this one, Rentebu or Air Closet, Air Closet was the first one to open in Japan that offered actually uh, the access to clothes online, and by that I mean that you can rent your wardrobe uh, online, and through the app you can actually have your daily uh, clothes clean and uh, laundry um, without the annoyances of that. And uh, 
surprisingly, in UK, um, rendezvous was not that uh, successful. It didn't work that out but it has been successful in other countries. When we see these tendencies, it's easy to ask ourselves where the closet is going to go, how the wardrobe or this new, um, this new tendency is going to push us to think that wardrobes are not going to be necessary anymore in our homes. And all these platforms, again, are kind of raising questions about wasting resources that are kind of at the same time kind of, uh, at the same time, kind of uh, promoting uh, the company through good behaviors, but at the same time, allowing us to understand that definitely it's, it allows us to reduce waste and consume by sharing, of course. And, uh, and not only the Guadalupe, but we can find other platforms that are kind of communicating the same message as Just Park that operates in London that offers to share your parking lot while you then use it. And they quote that actually just 10 or from 10 to 15% of, of uh, our day is um, the, the parking lot is used. So almost 85% of the time is, is not used. So they actually provoke us to use those platforms to increase efficiency, private parking, and, and reduce significantly, of course, the impact of that. I can quote many, many other hubs that operate in the same way. How to not waste your space in the sense that how to get more income off your home through this app. We can actually find kitchens that actually allow you to rent your kitchen per hours or use your kitchen as a productive place. We can actually find share my storage that actually you can offer your cupboard or even a room for uh, storing to your neighbors. Or this one that is quite particular, but it's shifting against, again, that, uh, that uh, limit between la labor and, and, and the domestic sphere. Broomy is an app that allows you to rent your living room as uh, an office space while you're not there at home. Or this one that is actually the most radical, the one that allows us to put the bathroom outside that terrace that is provoking a lot of comments uh, from the visitors. And that, again, unfortunately, didn't work that well in London, uh, but it working, it's working in other, in other cities and is allowing us to talk about ideas of privacy and um, publicity. Airbnb, uh, as you might already imagine, uh, allows you to rent your bathroom uh, through... Uh, uh, through um, the web, uh, through the app, and uh, you might be, uh, you might consider that this is uh, kind of a scandal, um, and it might be, of course. Uh, but it came out quite with a, quite a social uh, purpose goal. It came out in 2014 in New Orleans uh, as an answer to as to a need, actually. You know the famous Carnaval Mardi Gras that happens every year in, in New Orleans. It, due to the festival, the city is filled with uh, a lot of visitors. And uh, there was kind of a social need to have much more public bathrooms. So as a bottom-up movement, the people started to rent and their bathrooms and allow to, to use them to satisfy uh, a social need. So not only allow us to think about what means private and public uh, 
anymore, but also to understand that some of these platforms are emerging, emerging as an answer to the lack of a welfare state. And this is at the same time kind of interesting and at the same time kind of worrying. To that point, uh, these apps and platforms are actually emerging because not only we have a more uh, unsustainable situation and fragile, but also because our welfare states are not there that much anymore. And it's, it's really important all the time to be aware of the double side of the coin, aware of the strength and the dangers of all these movements. Of course, there's a lot of talk about how all these apps are allowing to have a better neighborhood relation, community relation. But it's true, and I'm quoting here, people here that it's in, in, in the room, that we have to, alert, to be alert about how this share homes also promote aggressive economic competition. We can, we can again, come back to Airbnb situation. And I'm quoting this that it came out at the Belgium Pavilion in a, two years ago at the Venice Biennale, uh, a pavilion um, created by Shimi Bosse and, and, and Jack Self, among others. And how also we, we can talk maybe more in the discussion about how these uh, new technologies are also collecting the data. And it's a, a discussion that we should address today because um, it's, uh, of course, it's worrying, but for many, many reasons. Um, I'm going to just quote one company, BEM Dental Insurance Policy in the United States, that comes along, the insurance policy comes along with a smart toothbrush. And by tracking the dental care data consumers, the company makes more accurate risk calculations and reduces premium payments of those who brush better. So being alert all the time, you have to behave, not only not smoke, but brush your teeth better. So we have to be aware of this, or many, many other, um, of course, the consequences of this new uh, Amazon keys that allow a better, of course, is convenient because it allows a better accessibility, but what means that the lock is not there anymore? It's definitely we have to be aware of this con totally contemporary situation where security is not more rely, is, doesn't rely anymore on a limit, on a boundary, on a locker, but it relies on the idea of trust. We feel secure, we feel secure because we trust this person to open our door. And we should ask ourselves then what this trust means, who defines it. And of course we realize that this trust is always defined through our privacy. We share some privacy and we are more trust, right? And I'm, I'm, I want to put this on the table because it's one of the, of the flags in the UK. Um, sorry, I lost myself totally. But well, basically, consequential robotics have uh, designed a set of robots that are taking care among other th of domestic things, and among other things, are taking care of the elderly. And we have to be aware of this. 
And, uh, and you can ask me, why, Anna, why are you talking about all this? Basically, it's not architectural. Well, it is architectural because during that time we were talking about how an elderly house should be. Nowadays, all these devices are pushing us to think that we're going to be live, we're going to live in our homes beyond certain age. So these appliances are going to allow us to live better. Of course, we're going to be live better. We might feel secure, but we have to again raise questions about isolation and security as well. And not, but and and, and we should. I, I hope we're going to talk. Uh, I, I'm late. Okay. We should talk about this in the discussion. I hope I'm looking at you guys because I want to discuss deeply about this. We should ask ourselves why Siri, Cortana, and Alexa develop activities historically assigned to women, and they always assign gender to these digital assistants. Um, they are the voice of care, and they're still women, right? Of course, Siri and Google Assistant allow to switch to male um, to male bosses. Siri since 2013 and Google since 2017, not that long ago. However, Alexa and Cortana do not have male options in every language, so a seal is not that optional. And I think that we should be aware of this because we cannot pursue certain behaviors through these apps that at the end are going to hurt our space and our architectures. And yeah, let's, why not? Let's uh, quote them through, based on Amazon. And I'm quoting somebody from Amazon. We believe Alexa exudes characteristics you'd see in a strong female colleague, family member, or friend. She's highly intelligent, funny, funny well-read, empowering, supportive, and kind. This is intentional, of course, he said. Well, if our technology is changing, why are not our behaviors towards the home and towards gender? Not that long ago, a family would sit gather around the TV as they did around the fireplace. Nowadays, a new social reality is engaging with the atomization of devices and the increased demand on services. Now families might not even have a TV. The TV losing its central place has modified our behaviors and the way we use our houses and rooms today. Now uses are superimposed, and the way in which we use the space become increasingly fragile and ephemeral. Individuals are atomized, plugged in their different devices, which along with profiting more on-demand services. These new habits allow us to imagine a house defined by generic spaces that are able to host different family structures and needs, where the use of any room is not predetermined and can change in time. If the modern movement, as I was quoting, even the Team 10, design each domestic space for a specific function, even, you know, speci determine specific surface and need, and a specific family type, Today, we have a need for neutral and reprogrammable spaces that are able to engage with a large number of social realities, answering all to all this up as well. The house is no longer just an unchanging space of our belongings, understanding that belongings are not there anymore, but rather a transient and network space that can be expanded and decreased according to our needs through the use of these new apps. 
even Peter and Alistair Smith reflected on the percentage of space devoted to storage in a house and defined a needed ratio. At the time, as I was mentioning, that was considered to be simple enough to be calculated and externalized. Nowadays, we know that that's not true. Our social needs are quite varied, as there are type of spaces that, that, and the type of spaces that we need. It is then necessary not to consider different types of behaviors, but also how one's needs and space change through our lifetime. The current technological landscape allows us to permanently transform our domestic space, understanding the city, and that's what is quite relevant nowadays, the city as a set of spaces on demand that allow us to reshape the limits of the house constantly. The whole city becomes part of our domestic realm, constantly redefining and blurring the borders of the house according to our acts and daily habits. Just imagine an extended house whose rooms are dispersed around the city. So the city is the whole domestic realm, and it's accessible through these digital apps. A new collaborative form of housing. The whole city actually belongs to you. In this new type of city defined by technological and network reality, the program of a domestic space is defined by the content of this space rather than its shelf. Any room can become a bedroom once you place a bed within. Any room can become a kitchen when you style a cooking device. We cannot deny that architecture goes beyond its permanent and built environment. Architecture has to be understood as a set of special relations between the existing built environment and the movable objects that determine the later. We are not looking for new forms, new materiality. Everything is there. This capacity of qualification through objects this increasing mix among interiors and exteriors, public and private spheres, allow us, to, allow us to think of the wall as a continuous interior, as an infinite number of interconnected interiors, following a slaughter definition in the wall interior of Capital, published in 2005, as this grand interior, so the city as a grand interior, an endless of domestic landscape defined by objects and technology. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anna. This was absolutely amazing. Thank you, Gonzalo, and thank you also, Anna, for giving me the chance to respond to such a complete overview and analysis of the current status of affairs. I brought very a couple of reflections that I think are somehow background to some of the topics introduced by Anna. Um, so I will share with you some these reflections and hopefully they will launch part of our conversations immediately afterwards. I'll try to be brief. We are all trained to uh, read and know these images. You know, this is an ad by Uber, confident driver uh, giving, uh, you know, space to a confident user, both dressed very elegantly and owning the moment, except that we don't, know, we, don't not, we don't not really own anything. All we know is what basically we read on our iPhone screens and somebody else probably in the center of Silicon Valley is actually uh, deciding what and who should be owning the, own, the moment. The reality is definitely less frictionless of what it seems. This is a picture of uh, the protest of taxi drivers in Paris in 2015, 
when, let's say, new form of jig labor intercept consolidated forms of labor regulation, this is what has happened in Europe and in the world. So conflicts around the basic introduction of the new possibilities delivered by uh, digital technologies and sharing platforms. And it's not only about labor. Anna, of course, introduced what are the consequences of Airbnb. I have worked with Airbnb uh, on a project, and it was one of the most striking experiences of my professional life. This matrix, we could call it a matrix of homogeneity, shows a series of listings from around the world. Um, you can see they're all basically the same. Uh, they provide and offer a similar taste to similar users. I call it a self, a bottom-up self, let's say, regimentation of taste and design. So yes, you can feel at home everywhere, but funny enough, the home is always the same. And it's never context-specific. So you might wonder what is the difference between that and this, whether this principle or business is very different from what old hotel chains were actually offering, with the exception that, of course, this is um, all diffused and around the world. So conflicts and evictions and uh, steep increase of friends. Airbnb, as many other digital platforms, is, at the, let's say, one of the very reasons why cities are changing and um, maybe gentrifying and maybe depopulating. This is a picture from an eviction in San Francisco. Uh, I think this was taken not long before uh, Proposition F was actually uh, voted. For those among you who don't know what Proposition F is, it's basically an attempt by the San Francisco City Council to limit the number of nights that listings were basic, that basically homes would be, be would be placed on Airbnb to be rented out. Um, the city failed, uh, so the proposition F was actually did not uh, pass. So, um, but what is maybe less known is that Airbnb invested over 10 millions of dollars uh, in counter propaganda. So basically, again, you might wonder whether this was a win or a purchase. The fact is that the romantic view of owners, families renting out their own apartments or part of their apartments to travelers or nomads is far away from reality, or maybe it's only part of the reality. The, uh, the actual situation in many cities in Europe uh, is as... Uh, basically, uh, in many cities of, in Europe, you can actually find uh, uh, hospitality corporations owning entire city blocks or entire city sectors in which listings are presented as owned by single people, single owners or family owners, but in fact, those are all fake profiles. So, so of course, there are many things which are m being made at the moment uh, around these issues, but the, real the reality is that we are looking into uh, situations in which uh, let's say, something that has started with a claim for authenticity, a very legitimate claim for authenticity, a new way of share spaces and share experiences has turned through the impulse of the market economy into something completely different. And again, protests have been launched all over the world. Gonzalo mentioned a project that I've worked on called Panda for the 2016 um, 
uh, also the triennial, um, in which we mapped 400 cases of global unrest uh, against uh, um, sharing platforms or digital platforms in general. Uh, so you could call this a global phenomenon. We also tried to map the, let's say, uh, areas of influence of market pervasiveness, pervasiveness of multiple sharing platforms. And the red here represents Airbnb, the blue um, Uber and many others, of course, which have different kind of geographic interests. You might say that maybe on the, on Airbnb, on the Airbnb empire, the sun never sets almost. Um, but the fact is that this is also a map of discontent. It's actually, it's mapping all the places where unrest or protests were actually, um, were actually occurred. And for me, what is interesting is that the visual logic of this map was almost one of combating empires. We gave that kind of graphic grammar to it. And if these are empires, despite the rhetoric that we all know that it's of uh, decentralization, uh, individual empowerment, there is a new Rome. And the new Rome is probably around uh, California and the Silicon Valley. Now, this image for me is very important because it prompts, and I hope we can discuss it, several questions related to you know, uh, whether we want Google or the kind to be the middleman between us and our refrigerator, our toothbrush, our <laughs> couch, our car, our streets, our public toilets. So whether we want to basically simply uh, not own anything because somebody else is actually owning everything. Um, and then a, a second type of reflection um, that's actually connected to a project that I've been working on in the past year, but so far it's absolutely under embargo, so I cannot mention it, but I can mention some data. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Anna mentioned that, of course, yes, we use digital platforms, but this comes also with a cost, and the cost is the production of data, a steep increase in the production of data. So this is actually a slide that refers to 2014 statistics. So 90% of data today has been created in the past two years, which means that, of course, there is an enormous amount of data production. And the cloud in itself, as you all know, it's not ethereal. The cloud is very physical. And it's physical, and it's manifested in huge infrastructures some marine fiber optic cables, switch points, and data centers. Now, data centers are one of the fastest growing typologies in the built environment today. That's, of course, they sort of reflect the steep curve of increase of data production. Data centers are used not just to process real-time data, but also to store data in Russia, and that's a news from a month ago. Companies are forced by law to keep data forever. That means basically that despite the fact that, for example, in some parts in Europe, data can be erased after three or five years in some areas of the world because of the sort of uh, fight uh, between tech corporation and local governance, data has to be kept forever, which has incredible consequences in, the, in terms of the built environment that it's maybe built far away from cities, but still it's getting built. So what I think, and I launch it as a point of reflection, if our homes are kind of dematerializing, 
kitchens are disappearing, closets are disappearing, we don't own anything, although since I had a baby, I own a lot of stuff. So the whole post-ownership thing is still to be questioned for me, but um, the point is that all, all that we think is disappearing, all that efficiency and so on, it's actually removed and rebuilt somewhere else in the form of a different kind of architecture. Not an architecture for people, actually an architecture for machines, which is completely standardized, aseptic, completely regulated, uh, something that very few people can access, and in which architecture still has a completely unknown role to play. Um, definitely not an architecture for people. This is, for example, a slide showing how many people would work in the Ford factory, in a Ford factory in 1930, you see, 2,800, and that's the Facebook data center in North Carolina employing one single engineer. Um, but of course, although this is not an architecture for people but for machines, it has enormous physical and energetic consequences. So if you sum up all data centers, energy consumption in the world is comes for the 11th most developed country in the world. That's my point of reflection. That's it. Well, thank you very much both for your presentations. I think like they were really good to like the brief but very intense presentation from IPO were really good to like contextualize Anna's project into a much uh, wider context. Um, I was I was last week um, on holiday, finally, um, in Copenhagen, and I was like seeing an exhibition on what it, uh, on the home and what is the the meaning of home. And there were like something in one of the um, uh, in one of the panel that uh, they were asking the visitors about like what is home for them. So they were like offering like four different options that you can like reply. And I want to like ask you the same question like what is home for you. The, the four, um, there were like four options, but you can like reply, uh, you can answer like something different if you, you find that they don't. Um. So the first one was about uh, the home is where your closest friends and family are. The second option was uh, a home is where you keep your belongings. Uh, the third one is where, where you were born. And the fourth one is where the Wi-Fi connects automatically. So, what is home for you in this kind of serene economy like context that we are living today? Uh, you are very, two, two very particular like cases because I know you are both like traveling all over, <laughs> all over the world like uh, right now. Um, Anna has just arrived from, from Chile, yeah? Um, and well, I said, I said that uh, IPO is uh, opening the Manifesta Biennale next year, actually next week. And this is why so, we are so thankful that he's here. So he's also like a, a very well traveler. I'll give a very cheesy answer. Go for it. Uh, home is where my daughter is. Oh. No, but I, I mean, it's, it's also, it also comes down to very simple things. Wait, and, wait until she grows up. No, no, and then, and then it will disappear again. But for at least 18 years, that's where it is. And, I also have, let's say, uh, I, I, I embrace the sort of post-ownership, uh, let's call it tendency. I own much less than previous generations that I, own, that I know. I have multiple places that I use as a base, so it's not really about a place. It's definitely about a Wi-Fi connection. Um, but it's also about my, uh, let's say, small uh, family in a way. Um, and that's something that I think uh, resist 
any of the discussions that we are that we are having, I think. But yeah. Yeah, I know. Maybe it's not one, two, three, or four. It's more. Um, well, I don't have a daughter, so I lack of that. Uh, but maybe, maybe we could recall like Rainham Barham. The home is not a house. When he was actually claiming that in relation to that the home is not only the physical, but you know all these technologies, and that he was talking already about this nomadic life. But we could push that idea further, saying that is a home is a set of um, ideals that we that makes us comfortable, and those ideals can be. Scaringly uh, physicalized through a company as Airbnb, and they can um, make us feel as home. Which that's kind of a scary because all these ideals that we have in mind are um, can be studied, catalog catalogized, and therefore mass produced. And that's a bit scary. Sorry, I don't know what's happening. Is it? Do you? Can you hear us? Okay. Yeah, there is something that I think was quite. Uh, uh, it's always quite urgent in this kind of discussion that about you know what you expect from from your home, especially in this very uh, let's say uh, let's call it moment of technological transition and so on. And normally, the discussion is always centered around how the home is transformed by new technologies or new services and so on. Very rarely, there is a discussion about you know how the home can be the place where your rights are protected, where your fundamental rights of freedom and privacy, for example, are protected. So, yes, we incorporate a lot of services. Then we have a lot of gadgets. Everything is connected and so on. But can you inhabit a place where all of this doesn't penetrate? For example, can you switch on and off a situation in which you are kind of fully protected by this? whether you want it or, or not. And I wonder whether, for example, that's an architectural discussion to have. You know, whether we can find ways as architects where you know, our fundamental rights are, in a way, protected uh, within you know, or by the architectural design of your place. Or maybe that's a question for you. I don't know. Hmm. But you mean protection in the physical terms? Uh, or as a citizen, yeah. probably. Yeah, I mean, like there, there is, there is a, a, a very interesting point, and actually there was a project by Sarah Teagle, a former student, from, is a designer from, from Central St. Martins, and she, she was exploring actually all this concept and how like, there is like, and she created like a kind of a speculative device that it was like a kind of router that was like against the router and trying to protect us to serve with third parties, like, you know, like, We've probably all heard like how the Roomba robot is like sharing the floor plan of our home to uh, third parties that we don't know who they are and they are not interested in our identity, but in the kind of algorithms that uh, we are defining through the use of our home. Same thing with the smart TV that can hear our conversations and all that. So she was basically presenting that kind of device that was protecting us from uh, from third parties and we could like allow and stop when our data is being served with others or not. And that is actually um, a very interesting point, and I'm now referring to, 
to Rankulha, who in, a, in an interview, he, he mentioned how architects are not fully aware of like, the consequences of digital life right now. And while like, our domestic spaces has evo have evolved uh, at a certain pace, with uh, or encouraged by the, the progress of digital technologies. On the other hand, like architects have become like kind of lazy, and they are not really responding to to that kind of change. And most changes are happening in that kind of like digital realm that is the invisible landscape that we are presenting here. Um, how do you think like architects who uh, are operating on, uh, right now in this? context and where certain platforms are taking over, certain platforms are, smart technologies are taking over the, the domestic space. Do you think like contemporary architects are actually responding to it or, or they are just becoming like a kind of passive agent in, in this equation? Well, it's difficult to talk in general, like I'm not an expert on contemporary architecture. Uh, I would say that at least Ipo and myself, we are answering to that for sure uh, in a sense that, and we're not claiming solutions that's not about it. It's more about being aware of, uh, of uh, the, these new tendencies that definitely would demand kind of an answer from our side. And I'm not saying that, again, the preexistent is not valuable. So, of course, we live in the preexistent uh, in these new ways and we adapt ourselves to it. But, but uh, for sure, as a consequence, the new housing stock, for instance, is gonna have, has to answer to that, in the sense that if the arrangement of the house allows us to share parts of the house more easily, that means that the house suits us, right? Nowadays, we just have one door, not three or four, right? Um, so all those little gadgets to have more doors, to have a house that doesn't, the form of it doesn't answer just to the family prototype, but rather to a wider um, social range. So as I was saying, in, to understand that the room has not to be predetermined in terms of program, even the kitchen, like to have this freedom of uh, being able to decide if you want a kitchen or not, or place it, whatever. I think that that's valuable in the sense that not everyone lives in the same way and we should understand that compared to, for instance, the 20th century, there was an obsession about program and determine the best position of it. We nowadays have to operate as internet, as this wide uh, page that can allow different form, forms of, uh, of living. And yeah, I would say that well. What do you think? I, I think it's, I, I agree with Anna, of course. I think also maybe there is a need of a new kind of architect. Somebody that is more concerned with networks and physical space and where instances of, for example, accessing from your home the way your data is processed from the same corporations which are actually entering your home should be, a, should be something that is given as a chance to people who inhabit the space. Maybe I can uh, quote a project of uh, a person that I admire a lot, who is James Bridle, who uh, has talked, wrote a lot about the relationship between technology and, and, and architecture, of course. But for example, he, he has developed a very simple tool uh, that it's something that you can plug in in any kind of device um, that has a screen that shows, for example, where your data is flowing. And that gives you basically the chance to make visible a condition that otherwise would not be visible. And for example, choose whether the data should flow 
through certain, uh, certain countries or not, and let's say be processed by corporations in, in, a, in, in different ways, so that maybe you could limit or decide the way the information that you're actually sharing is actually, uh, is then used, you know, for, market, for you know, marketable reasons. Yeah, and going beyond, um, like, listening to people, going beyond the physical, we should start talking and addressing terms of laws, for instance, uh, from the architectural point of view. Which kind of regulation and legal status we have to achieve in order to allow things to, this, certain things to happen without losing certain welfare rights in terms of, you know, uh, social equality, uh, city, um, health, etc. And that's an architectural problem as well. There was something that you mentioned, I and mean, like the new housing should respond to like these kind of changes in, in the family structures and, and what it defines as a family right now and, and the kind of different kind of uh, typologies of householders. Um, but what is true, like now, in, well, for instance, I think you mentioned it in the, in the installation in now, that um, the UK have the oldest housing stock in the whole Europe. So actually, architects have to deal with like the existing housing stock. Um, and it's very interesting that in your installation you are presenting the smart technologies or like the technology as a kind of hidden layer there that is like just invisible in a way. Um, but one of the questions that I normally get like when people are visiting the, the space is like, what is the architecture there? Well. What I, what, I, what, I, what I try to explain is that now most of the changes are happening in terms of domesticity and the way we use the space and how people interact. And, and for that, like, uh, technology is a, is a kind of medium for like, uh, that kind of interaction between the objects and the way we make this object like, more efficient, more profitable. Or, um, what do you think is like, the role of interiors? And you mentioned this house, the, the city becoming like a kind of interconnected spaces, the house is an open system. Um, how do you think like this, the house is connecting now, or the home is not connected with the city? Um, and again, like in, the, in that kind of context, dealing with the, all the housing stock in, in the whole Europe, how can architects operate? And I'm kind of going back to the previous question, but it like, it's it kind of important to emphasize like what is the architecture in that context? No, of course, um, all these new apps and technology are going to have an, an effect on the housing stock. And probably a new typology are going to emerge, as, as, as I was saying before, that allow all these um, new types of living to happen. And, but as an answer to previous housing installations, we wanted to, do, we wanted to deal just with the ordinary and pre-existing, saying there's not a house of the future per se. The, the idea of the house of the future is a cliche that has been always there, you know, and everyone wants to design the new thing and etc. And the new is the now. And we're always saying this, the new is the now, because it's happening now and it's going to be like this in, in 30, 40 years. Still, the same buildings are going to be there. And so somehow we wanted to deny this need of new the use of new materiality and form. Uh, like to say, uh, it's about how we arrange things rather than the things itself. It's about the space and these relations of spaces. And we kind of in a radical manner, we claim for the persistent 
against, you know, Baham and, and, and the Smiths and kind of being quite clear with that. And also to be quite clear with the fact that it's about something that it's not physical, so it's invisible. And it's about where we place and what we take. I think this is a very interesting point because you could also, uh, let's say, argue that the areas and cities in which the most accelerated technological development is actually happening, it's really the center, you know, where most of technological corporations or new kind of working spaces are emerging, new forms of housing are emerging. It's not necessarily new construction. It's actually the very consolidated part of the cities. Um, which proves, in a way, Anna's point, that technology is become, has become so pervasive that, in fact, its materiality or its actually physical manifestation is almost irrelevant. Because, anyway, if it's something that can be regulated starting from, you know, something that you can touch on your hand, or it's even integrated, in some cases, in your own body, uh, talking about, you know, new forms of cyborgs and so on, uh, the physical space itself is not really, really, really that crucial in itself, as much as the use that you make of it, or the kind of improvised use that you make of it. And uh, to me, it's always kind of interesting to, to actually um, notice that the very yeah, consolidated historical cities have been able to adapt very, very quickly. London is a very good example, but there are many others. Paris is another good example. Very quickly to, to new technologies. That, that is connected like with something that you explained in your presentation and how like the, the house is not it's just changing. Like there are things that are disappearing but that is not actually disappearing. They are not becoming just invisible. They are like being transformed on something else. The kitchen is not disappearing, it's being transformed into a like collective kitchen or like the Thai kitchen from the restaurant like uh, in on the ground floor or and same thing with the closet. The, 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 your clothes are like somewhere else and you are like just renting them but they still need that physical space and that if we move into a more like territorial like connection it's connected about your data you know like only like the, the one harvested in your in your home but it's something that is being like filtered and registered in, in Nevada or whatever um, and that is again like this kind of very nice idea that you explore in your project that is like the house as an open system so um, there was something else in your presentation that I think it, it was very interesting. And in like, uh, we tend to associate that these sharing platforms are responding to new trends that are defined by a nomadic life um, for um, a younger generation. But in fact, um, and I realized with, the, with your project and, and chatting with the visitors, uh, many people are now realizing about like, the benefit that platforms like Airbnb uh, could provide to, to their house. Like now that their children they are, uh, are, are gone, they have like spare space that they can like rent out. And, also, and actually that is responding to the kind of economic structures uh, and save, um, because the pensions are so low, particularly in, in, in the UK, that is helping them financially. And not only financially, but also like in terms of like having companion in, in their homes and feeling like they are like still like hosting people, so I think it like it's very interesting to see like how these certain platforms are responding to very different generations. And um, I would like I, I I mean my main question is like uh, well that is obviously like as um, both Sumi and Jack uh, uh, were mentioning in the in their project, this is creating like a very aggressive economic competition. In my case, I was like pulled out by my landlord like a few years ago because he preferred to like rent it out through Airbnb and it was more profitable, more profitable for him. 
Um, and that is happening with many other things, and it's having a drastic like, uh, impact on the, on the kind of uh, structures, uh, social and financial structure in, in, in central locations, in, in not only in London, but in many other cities. Are they really like sharing, uh, sharing platforms, like responding to our needs, or do you think that they are actually uh, defining what our need will be like, not only now, but also in the future? Because that is like what was, I don't, I don't know if that's a common like phrase in, in, in English, but in Spanish we say what was fur, like the egg or the chicken. I think it's vice, vice versa, no? I think it's both sides. Um, there's this, um, also this uh, interesting data that we, we comment on the installation about how this, all these new technologies and home devices especially, since the, the beginning of them in the 20th century has always raised the idea that uh, the home uh, devices are being designed for helping you, right, to work less at home or as Roomba, no, for instance. And despite that, social studies have proved that we always work the same amount of hours, uh, dedicate the same amount of hours in housekeeping. Which means that maybe we have a device that produces something this faster, but then we do something else. So the device raised with the device, another kind of need is raised. So our needs are always evolving, and our desires as well. So it's curious the question, but I would say that it's both. So they are solving, and then they're producing at the same time new desires that. And I guess in the same way, like they are not just, I mean, architects who like both focus not only on the changes happening in the home, but all the new infrastructure that are responding to all these, all these other spaces that are supporting like the needs that are not, or the functions that are not being developed in the, in the home any longer. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, I think like there is something like uh, I mean, sharing platforms boomed after the financial crisis of 2008. I like very much what Anna said, uh, that basically they're a response to the increasing instability of our economical and social lives. So they have started as a response to a need, a very concrete need, of course. Uh, but I think we are now basically at a turning point where needs are being engineered for us. You know, in the same way that we've we, our votes or our political kind of preferences are affected. Uh, also our preferences, I call it self-regimentation in a way, and in the slide when I was referring to the Airbnb listings from all over the world, are affected. So it started as a response to needs, very concrete, but it turned into a sort of, in, uh, to a sort of engineering, permanently engineering making machine of needs in a way, and that's a kind of limit of dealing with uh, you know, remote algorithms, where you don't really have an impact in a way. I mean, the impact you're actually, you're completely passive to uh, very few kind of interactions, and you're kind of presented with a picture that you think you own, but in fact you're not owning at all. I think we are I mean, like... slightly dark, but uh, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the whole thing is like a little bit like Black Mirror. Um, um, <laughs> Um, I would like to like now open the floor for questions from the audience. I wonder if you, you're dramatising something. I mean, throughout this, I've been thinking, where is Eric Hobsbawm? You know, we need somebody in here who can see the arc of the arc of being bourgeois. You know, what a happy little group we are. We're all the same people. 
go outside, we could find some, a few slightly different people, go five miles, we could find a lot of very different people. They're not here. Why? Because they're not in the tribe. So where are the tri- you guys have been sitting at a kitchen table with no wine, having a kind of things are changing, we are being manipulated kind of conversation. I'm wearing jeans. I've worn jeans for 60 years. I was never a San Francisco gold rush miner. Never been near the gold rush. This is bullshit. This is something that was invented and sold to me in in the late 50s, and I haven't stopped wearing them. But I'm not worried about it. I just need to know that because I'm a moderately intelligent person. I don't worry in the morning I'm, I'm dressed in um, a code. But everybody here knows that they function within a code. And you have to deal with the code. The most important person here is the most invisible person, is your daughter. And your daughter craps and smells. You hold her to you. It, it's extremely physical. And you can do that in the kitchen, the toilet, Outside, inside, when it's hot, when it's cold, that's what you do. And in 20 years' time, she'll be a different person. And I think you have to pay attention to the... This nice lady said, our desires change. We don't even know what the two-year-old's desires are. We, we do think... We, we go, hello! And the child responds or doesn't respond. And we go, oh my God, I think it's got consciousness. But this has been going on forever except in the last couple of hundred years we invented childhood which is now over we don't have childhood anymore but childhood was invented by the victorians so we're we're in a sea of structures and i think i just wonder if this isn't making this i mean imagine the railways arriving in london Imagine, no railways in 1830, by 1840, they're fucking everywhere. And then they fuck the city. And then we complained. So that's a rhetorical set of points. But I think, I really get nervous that we'll just become so precious that we can't function. And I'll be dead anyway, so I'm not worried. (laughs) You want to reply to, yeah. I, what the question? <laughs> he was raising like some very like relevant points, and, and one of them is something that we have discussed uh, over the last months, and it like how this change uh, developed by digital technologies is not something new. It's uh, it's just something that has happened over the over the last century since the, like the steam engine appear like uh, as a kind of like solution for making everything more, more productive and in fact now technology they have changed but uh, but not in such a radical way uh, uh, because we are always like following the pace of technology and architecture is trying to respond to that and um, but functions uh, like basic function basic human functions and are, pro- are probably always the same so in a way like we need yeah like cleaning your baby or uh, we need to like uh, return yeah, to that. Our housing stock, stock doesn't answer to our social reality at all, and that has been for it's true decades. Like that's the main issue. Our housing stock doesn't answer to our housing reality. That's the issue, and it has been like there for decades. I do agree, but it's still the same. We can talk about typology, 
And uh, um, I know a bit about UK because we started this research a year ago, but I know a lot about Spain. Our stock market in Spain, typologically talking, is defined by this apartment type that has a large living room, a big bedroom with a private bathroom and two smaller bedrooms. That's our 90% of our housing market, typologically speaking. Just 27% of our society respond to that profile of family, which means a couple with one or two child. And those social studies have been there for decades, but our developers and you know, like uh, promoters are not listening. And it's true, it's, it's an issue that, and I'm, I'm talking now about an issue that it doesn't have at all, to, it's not about technology or apps at all, it's about just typology, right? But what um, is affecting this new access to this app is actually the, the fact, as I was mentioning, that uh, now we have access to get a secondary income easier through our homes. And that means that we're sharing our homes with others, and that's an answer to our precarity economical situation. And that affects mainly, uh, of, uh, in UK, mainly those generations a bit below 50, 50s. And, uh, which means that then, as we have to share our house, uh, we have to invent a lot of tricks in this kind of uh, uh, typological market that we have to still be comfortable. And that's a problem. It would be way different if our house market would actually allow us to have those needs answered easier. That would, that would be my answer. No, but definitely, I would agree with you. And look, electricity came out in the 50s, like 1850s, right? 1860s. And, um, and the consequences on the domestic didn't, didn't arrive until early tw- tw- um, 20th century. So it was like, it took like 50 years. The, what Reinhard Barham started to talk at that time, and all the discussions after uh, the crisis of 73 are still on the table. And we're still discussing about the same topics. The big difference is that uh, due to the, like, what, I, what I'm more worried is that due to the 2008 crisis, all those questions that were there for decades are like speeding up to the point that you know, Airbnb passed from 2000 something to almost a million houses in a few years in London. And that's like, wow, everything is being speed up to the point that somehow we need to talk more about those issues. And maybe the consequences are gonna happen in a couple of decades, of course, for your daughter. <laughs> Do we have any other questions? I remember going from um, northern Spain to, to Madrid and you'd see empty villages because I think, uh, am I right in saying that Franco brought people into the cities? He had that five-year plan, didn't he? And in Spain you had a lot of apartment blocks built, didn't they? And most people in cities lived in in apartments, so they would have come in from the villages and had to adapt. Obviously, their homes would have been completely different. Um, you know, uh, it was quite a number of years ago when I taught there. In the world, also, more people have to come into cities to work, and therefore, I suppose what you're discussing um, 
is uh, it's the problem of employment, isn't it, really, and how uh, cities have grown and how people had to live, uh, you know, had to leave villages and the accommodation that would have been in the past and to adapt, but perhaps architects aren't giving them what they really want. But I think that's right in Spain, isn't it? That um, the Spanish um, housing type is a bit different from, from the UK housing type. Um, in Spain, uh, the apartment type was there in the 19th century as a kind of a general uh, typology. Um, just in the rural areas, uh, you could find homes and how, like single homes, but mainly in the city, especially in the 19th century, where, where, when the modern cities were built, uh, both in Madrid and, and Barcelona, both of them already the apartment, following the Hausmannian apartment type, they, they, you know, they just basically copy Parisian urban type and uh, it was not a, it was not that much related with labor i would say like just uh, all kind of uh, social range were living at that moment in apartment types uh, what franco promoted was the ownership that was franco proposal there was a lot of uh, rural movement uh, from movement, migrant movement from, as you were mentioning, in, during Franco time, but basically because of the economical crisis after the civil war in 1939. So in the 40s and 50s, cities were filled with, um, with new migrations from the rural areas, but the, typology, the housing typology didn't change that much because of that. What changed actually it was that Franco decided to change from the rental system to the ownership system. Uh, he started uh, the first housing minister in the 50, in ministry in the 50s, and he raised this slogan, the first minister raised this slogan uh, that uh, he claimed, we're going to change this uh, country from workers to owners. In Spanish, it's much, it's much more interesting because uh, it, in terms of language, it means, in the translation is... Um, Vamos a cambiar este país de proletarios en propietarios. Proletarios, worker, propietarios, owner. Which in language is really nice to see proletario, propietario together. And he basically decided to raise the ownership uh, system in order to control. He was uh, worried, uh, the dictatorship uh, was worried about um, the new neighbors' uh, associations that were happening in different uh, uh, cities as a, as a consequence of the new rental types to erase uh, any type of community uh, discussion or, or so. Uh, he basically decided to divide those community little ownerships. So uh, from that, um, from that uh, moment onwards, Spain was defined by the citizens that had an ownership and they just talk with the bank, not with the neighbor. Easier to control. We only have like one more question, we can do it, uh, and then like we conclude the event. It seems to me a lot of this is to do with uh, values. Um, and the question I have, and I think that resonates through this, is uh, how empowered are we in terms of controlling what it is that is seen as valuable. Um, there are market forces beneath it all that kind of determine what is valuable, but is it really valuable to us and are we empowered? And to me there's like an underlying sort of economical factor which has persisted for 
a number of centuries has just kind of determined a lot of this dialogue. Uh, I think the question is, is very much rooted in um, uh, how empowered we are and how do we empower ourselves to determine the direction we go in. And that kind of alludes to your um, talk earlier on of the sort of forces behind it and who owns the data and stuff like that, etc. Um, ultimately, maybe there was a need, but it becomes uh, a profitable exercise. Um, and that sort of reveals ultimately the kind of the basic kind of values of, of our economy for a while has been about sort of profit maximizing essentially. And so how do we return to a world where we're getting what we really value and getting the world built around us um, for those purposes? I think that's to me is sort of like the fundamental crux of the matter. I don't know what um, you guys think. It's a very difficult question uh, because I think uh, what we presented today uh, was both about empowering people. In a way, sharing platforms do empower people. They allow to, people to create or to extract value from their own properties or flat closets, clothes, whatever. At the same time, uh, at the same time, basically, you sort of suffer the decisions which are, you know, forced upon you. By, by external forces or invisible, you know, uh, processes. Um, yeah, the exercise, the, it, it's difficult to think, uh, let's say, about ways. As we stand today, it's extremely difficult to think about ways in which there could be a sort of a rebalancing of values. Uh, the European Union has made, has made recently huge steps into forcing some forms of regulations to uh, a number of sharing platforms, and there are some independent, uh, let's say, uh, initiatives um, which are being successful. The exercise that we did uh, a few years ago, two years ago, was to basically design a sharing platforms that would uh, gather instances of discontent uh, among Uber drivers, Airbnb hosts, uh, um, people basically who signed and who are working for sharing platforms or they're using services of sharing platforms, but they're kind of, uh, you know, um, let's say, uh, suffering the change of policies day by day of the platform itself. They, cannot, they don't really have any kind of uh, instrument to actually, uh, you know, uh, negotiate their position. So what we did was basically to create uh, what we call a super collider. Uh, it's maybe a little bit of a technical uh, definition. Basically, you could sign up to this platform, share uh, your data. That means basically say exactly what, what, what your problem was. And the platform would be able to gather, for example, around the world of 50,000 people who had exactly the same issue. Uh, maybe Uber drivers that are kind of uh, in Paris, in Brazil, in whatever area of the world and then gather them around a possible action that the platform would offer. And the action was ranging from legal support, because 50,000 people can pay, for example, collectively an extremely good lawyer or lawyer uh, uh, office, basically, to support their class action, for example, till very extreme consequences uh, that we called sort of sabotage, but that was the most fictional part of the, or black mirror part of the, of the platform. Um, 
there are real examples of these things, uh, which are kind of being initiated all over the world uh, as you could call it civic initiatives, and they, at the core of their values, it's basically a redistribution of value, in a way. Or the definition of, of a more symmetric relationship between us as users and the platforms as, you know, initiators or algocrats. Um, but it's, I mean, I, 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 I really don't have, but I don't think really anyone has the instrument to say whether this is working or not. Um, overall, Silicon Valley has a political program, and the political program is called algorithmic regulation. And that's exactly, it's, it's the regulation that basically, uh, it, it's basically the process that allows, you know, the gathering and processing of uh, uh, data to create and generate your own choices, basically. Uh, we mentioned it before. Um, we mentioned when we said, okay, w whether these platforms are actually following our needs or creating our needs, that's exactly what algorithmic regulation or algorithmic regulation applied to many platforms is actually doing. It's basically generating your own needs, although you don't know it. That's a kind of, uh, that's a kind of a chicken and egg uh, situation. Um, whether, this, whether the number of civic initiatives which are popping out around the world are working, that's maybe my daughter will know. It's still too early, I would say. That last question is also like a very good thing to talk about, like uh, our next event and to conclude today. Uh, our next event is a seminar with Doma and Jack Self, who I think was here or is here today, and we will be discussing how blockchain technologies can empower like uh, new ways of uh, home ownership. Um, yeah, it's on the 27th of June, so you can go to our website and have a look because it's going to be a very, very interesting like roundtable and, and seminar. Um, now I would like to, um, to thank uh, Ippolito Pistellini uh, to wish him all the best with the next week with the uh, Manifesta Biennale in Palermo. Um, thank you very much for being here today. I know it was like bits. <laughs> Um, also, of course, to thank you to Anna Pujaner and the rest of Mayo for, as I said at the beginning, for making possible this very first uh, project in the Architecture Studio. Um, thanks to all of you for being here today. We hope to see you in our next uh, events and also to come and visit the, the next iterations as part of Invisible Landscape. Now, please, uh, big applause to you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.